Well, hello, friends. Welcome to Bottom of the Bottle. This is Manny Gonzalez. Adam and I have had a couple weeks off. Many people don't know this, but Adam lives and works on Cape Cod, and the summer months are his busy season. In fact, tomorrow kicks off summer with the solstice, which is very, very exciting. But Adam needs a little time to kind of regroup because it's going to be a hellstorm for the next three or four weeks for him. My time will be in November, December, so we'll see how much we can record then. But in the meantime, I had the great pleasure of sitting with my friend Bruno Almeida, who is a contributor for Summation Live. You can find them on Instagram. That's S-O-M-M-A-T-I-O-N underscore L-I-V. And it's a group of sommeliers and wine advocates who do a lot of live interviews. Bruno interviewed me on Friday. We had an amazing conversation about wine, about music. It was probably the best wine conversation I've ever had in my entire life. And it was really meaningful. And Bruno is such a beautiful human. Uh, You can find him on Instagram at Drummelier, D-R-U-M-M-E-I-L-E-R, because he's a musician, an incredible musician, incredible drummer, all around awesome dude. He is also not just a certified, he is also an advocate for Portuguese wines. And more specifically, he is a brand ambassador for Vino Verde, the entire DOC of Vino Verde, which is amazing. But he knows a hell of a lot about Chenin Blanc and about white wines from France. And I hope you guys enjoy the show because it was just such an honor, a pleasure, a joy. And I'm ecstatic and so grateful that they allowed me to take our video and upload it as an audio file. I put in some killer music we were talking about. I hope you guys enjoy it and we'll see you soon. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Summation Live. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today with me, I have the great pleasure of having Manny Gonzalez. We met a couple of months ago in Massachusetts for the first time, and we had a great conversation about music and, uh, and wine. And uh, today with me, I have the great pleasure of sharing a few words about wine and music. Uh, please welcome Manny uh, Gonzalez. He's a, a very talented musician, a podcaster, a wine educator, and a portfolio manager. Please welcome uh, Manny. I cannot believe episode 319. Yes, here we go. How are you, my friend? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. I'm listening to some Led Zeppelin, man, just to kickstart things. Hey, was that Ramble On? Yeah, Ramble On. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry, my hair's a little frizzy. It's, it's humid here in Massachusetts, and uh, it just, like, it puffs up, so. My mom. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, oh. It's just such a joy and you know when we got to work together um in a couple months ago it was it was amazing with such great conversations and uh to me it felt very much not just in terms of our interest in wine but music and look at humanity like we're kindred spirits so so it's it's pretty rad to be here with you now no thanks thank you my friend um again it's a great pleasure like to uh, to share those moments with you and uh you know have different perspective 
not only in wine, a lot of times we think about wine and there's other ways that we can think about wine and it was very interesting to share those thoughts with you. Um, but uh, thank you so much again for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit like what's behind Manny, uh, Manny Gonzalez, where are you coming from? Like how wine happened to you? Tell us a little bit about your journey awesome. in life in, in wine. You know, it's funny because it's, it's a hard question to answer, but it's one I think about often because wine is not always the easiest career to be in. We, everyone thinks it's glamorous, but it's especially in, in my role in sales, it is sometimes horrible and sometimes amazing. <laughs> but um, so my name is Manny Gonzalez. I work as a portfolio manager as well as a uh, wine specialist for Horizon Beverage Company. I focus on wines of the Iberian Peninsula, France, South America, and sake from Japan as well. Nice. Um, and uh, I got into the wine world, you know, first and foremost, I thought wine was I, the whole concept of like aromas and it, it was kind of BS, like that, that's not a thing. And I uh, was waiting tables at this restaurant in Vermont. Uh, someone had, had handed me a glass of Pinot Gris, it was Duckhorn Pinot Gris. <laughs> and it smelled to me like cantaloupe. It was the most, um, almost cerebral experience because like it just started to make sense. And then I started working at uh, some restaurants in Boston um, back around 2000 when I moved here, 99. And I had the pleasure to work with some great chefs and uh, this old French dude by the name of Jean-Claude Jasso, who was a world highlight champion in the 70s, who ran um, Le Zygmunt for a while with his uh, wife, Elena. Mm -hmm. uh, or they were in the beverage program there. Um, and then I worked with them at a place called Limbo with this awesome chef, uh, Charles Draghi. And they really kind of encouraged me to step into the wine world. And so at that point, it really was kind of an evolution um, and a development of, of my palate. And what I really love about the wine world, I know I'm, I know I'm rambling here, but I've had some uh, shit and block, so I'm going to do that. <laughs> but, um, you know, like our conversation when we were working together, it, there's so many things that are encompassed within wine, you know, within obviously culture, uh, within humanity, within language, politics, the arts, food, all these different things. And I found that I became a much broader person when I started looking in the wine world like that, mm -hmm. um, rather than just, this is a really nice bottle of wine, or this is what it tastes like. I'm really interested in the story behind it, what makes it happened and um, and how it connects us in a, in a deeper, I think, more meaningful way. I don't know if that answered the question or not. No, 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 it answered, no, it totally answers the question because like we learned so much in the past few years and we, we um, you know, like something that uh, really opened up the conversation in wine, it's how we communicate about wine and how certain palettes, certain demographics, certain backgrounds, certain people across the world, mainly when we doing this in a virtual digital era, that uh, what it is for me might not be the same thing for someone like in Alaska or in, uh, in, uh, in Brazil. So there's many ways that we can communicate, not only about like terminology and everything, but some people relate with wine with film. Some people relate with wine with a great book. So for us as musicians, and always like the fact of uh, winemakers being musicians too, always like like those crazy ones are always have like an artistic backbone or either they're painters and everything. Yeah. And 
you know, in what, while we were talking about all this, like one of the things that I really enjoyed was the fact that I, I think I mentioned this to you. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine, Susan Lin, which is a master of wine and she has a master degree in musicology. And the way we had a conversation here too at Summation was an awesome uh, talk. And the way uh, her essay for the, master degree, for, uh, the masters in wine uh, was about like how to taste in the perception of non-vintage champagne uh, with classical music, how to put something more up-tempo, something a little moderate, and like something a little slower, and how people were tasting was totally different. Just that, like I think it, it uh, screams volumes, for instance. And um, this Monday, I was in an event uh, for CD Meals, me in summation, we did a great event for CD Meals at uh, Cipriani here in Manhattan. And there was some salsa, there was like all this kind of music and everything, and I was pouring Alvarino. We had some, uh, some Cava and uh, some Rioja. And the way music was playing, easily people would go towards like Alvarino, the Alvarino like that, that I was pouring. Everyone was just like having that feel. I want some more of this wine because it's vibrant. It's like I want this. I want this. Rioja, great Rioja, was right next too. And then later on, people start to go with the, with the Rioja, and not necessarily we can think like, oh, it's because like a beginning. No, it's just the vibe. And music speaks volumes to people, and mainly the time that we really want to celebrate. We want to be happy. We want to keep our taste buds happy. I think music plays a great role in that.
Puerto Cedro voy para Matané, llego a Puerto voy para Mayaví. De Alto Cedro voy para Matané, llego a Puerto voy para Mayaví. And how was music for you like started for you like what instrument like you're a great guitar player but how did that happen to you was something in the family or well yeah i was very fortunate to have a, a father who was uh, an incredible uh piano player um could read music could, could play classical music um just with a piece of sheet music um didn't have the best ear tonally for his own voice because he learned how to play on a a piano that had a cracked soundboard so he was always off key a little bit you're like he's dead you got a good voice but not quite but um but you know he used to actually play quite a bit during the 50s uh in a lot of different bands and he grew up near east l.a and um he was actually knew very well the piano player for richie valens um they were in the same neighborhood they they were in the same circle of musicians and they were always jealous of each other because My dad could sight read anything and play with feeling. It, it, he wasn't mechanical when he played. Um, and I don't remember his name, but the, the um, pianist for Richie Valens could only play by ear. So oh. they were always each other's talents. Um, and then my older brother, Frank, really was, I think, the catalyst. Um, not just watching him play, and obviously it's your big brother, you emulate everything that you want, emulate everything they do, and hope they don't you know, hit you while they're doing it. Um, and sometimes that would happen while he was playing, <laughs> but, uh, you know, watching him play, I really became interested in the guitar. Um, he used to play for my mother who family comes from Catalonia, but she grew up in, uh, and is from Mexico and very much Chicana in her, in her affect, um, really wanted him to play Malagueña. And so he learned how to play it. And I was really captivated by Spanish guitar at that point. Um, so when I was in my early teens, he had this tape called The World of Spanish Guitar by Narezco Yepes, who is this incredible um, classical guitarist from Spain. He actually, had a, I think it was a nine-string guitar. Mm. And uh, I used to listen to that going to bed. And actually, once in a while, I'll be at an account in Boston called Bin26, and the buyer, uh, Nader, will play that, like, excerpts from that album not knowing that I, I know it. So I'll, like, oh my God, this is uh, Granada from, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'll kind of correct the name is this uh, performer or from, from uh, Tarega. Like, like, I know this, I, I slept with this.
Um, and then Robert Johnson was another one. And I used to listen to okay. Robert Johnson in like six, like when I was 16, 15, nonstop. And so that was really kind of the drive for me to, to really pick up music. And then obviously bands like Led Zeppelin, uh, Rush is a huge fan, or, mm-hmm. a, a huge fan of, and it was a big influence on me growing up. Um, Jeff Toll, and then got into more, you know, contemporary heavy metal music from there, and then the Arabic music and Jeff Buckley and all this. So it's a big hodgepodge mix of weirdness sometimes in my head with music. You said Jeff Buckley? Yes. Yeah. Oh man, he was the man. When I when I when I I, I was only introduced to Jeff Buckley, and he unfortunately had a very short career. But such an interesting persona, such an interesting musician, and his story of life—it's quite something. And when I landed in 2002 in New York, that's when I was introduced by my bass player and my singer. They kept talking about uh, Jeff Buckley, Jeff Buckley. I didn't know anything about it. Then I heard stuff that um, that uh, Chris Cornell did about it, like his, uh, his stuff, like the lost tapes and everything. And landing in Brooklyn and like he was like all about Brooklyn, like in the places yeah. like he used to play there, like he used to play over here and people would tell me producers and everything. It was like this dude, like for me, it was quite, quite something like to, um, to, uh, to understand as a musician that really marked me. And I was just like listening nonstop. Um, Grace, Grace was a, like that album is just pretty amazing. And his father was pretty talented too. So Tim Buckley. Yeah, Tim Buckley was, was really well known. Yeah, I mean, I had the same experience. I, I first was introduced to his music by an ex-girlfriend um, in the early 2000s, so similar time frame, and was really captivated. And what I really love about it in his voice, the, the intensity of his voice. Super intense. It is, it is almost, I mean, if, I hope you don't mind me saying this, it's almost... Um, on the verge of a constant climax, orgasmically. Yeah. Um, and the music always resolves with that yeah. climax. climax. Such a pleasure to hear. You know, um, these crescendos. It, it is. It's powerful. Uh, there's mean, actually a great musician uh, from Pakistan by the name of Nusrat Fatali Khan, who actually he did some music with Eddie Vedder, um, and he worked. Well, he knew Jeff Buckley. Uh, he died, I think, in the late 90s, so just probably after Jeff Buckley did. But um, Jeff Buckley did covers of his songs, and he would sing in Urdu, and it's the most incredible music ever. And to hear Jeff Buckley sing like Nusrat Patalakan and use the same um, influx in his voice, the same or similar phrasing, it's just, it's incredible to hear that. You know, it's it's exciting when I hear stuff like that. I get I just get excited. Yeah.
You know, when I heard when I heard Grace and like and all this stuff and mainly like those lost tapes that Chris Cornell did, like that song, I think what is what is it, uh, Vancouver? I think like it's all about climax. Like it just like builds up, builds up, and it just explodes at that moment. And those kind of musicians. And today we are celebrating Chenon Blanc. So it's been yeah. a little bit. It's been a little bit of. Um, interesting day like about Chinon Blanc because it's tomorrow but apparently I think South Africa is celebrating today I don't know if it's time lap the time range or something like that but today and tomorrow we celebrate uh, Chinon Blanc and for instance like for me the way I see some Chinon Blanc for instance I'm, I'm drinking some Samur and like that kind of perspective of a Chinon Blanc that's vibrant that keeps building up it's a one then with age and how elastic Chinon Blanc can be 
for me, like for instance, I can see Jeff Buckley a little bit in it, like how he builds up, like in Ghost Torment, and just like boom. Um, but I grew up with music from my parents. Like I had different perspectives of both of them. Both of them came from the colonies of Portugal, uh, coming from uh, from Africa at the time. And my mom, she was from Mozambique. Like she had like big, deep roots to Mozambique. Actually, her great grandmother, she was a Zulu. Because where she was from, it was like on that other side of the steam country, steam country on that side. And uh, my mom would be like on top of the border with, with South Africa uh, facing the, the Indian Ocean. But um, she was very connected to her roots in terms of African music and everything. But she got to Portugal kind of kind of in the late, like early, no, it's like 16 or 17. So she was listening to Janis Joplin, to Joan Baez, all the great songwriters of that time. Uh, with um, with uh, with oh like uh, what, what's his name? Uh, uh, all those guys, like the big songwriters at that time. Yeah. Oh, uh, Chris Christopherson. Like that too. That's too. But my father, he was going like towards Genesis and going towards like the Emerson, like in Palmer, and she introduced yeah. me like to the to the double vinyl, you know, like the arena rock. Uh, and that's what I got to be a drummer was by listening um, uh, Peter Chris doing a, a solo uh, for Kiss at the Kiss Live. And I was like, Dad, I like this. What's going on? What's with this? <laughs> like, like with not pens, but like with the pillows and everything, only got a drum set when I was like 11 or 12 or something. But that like seeing like the albums and everything that's what got me into music uh but they were very different they would listen to pink floyd like pink floyd they would listen and those bands for me like at that time i would not necessarily like um listen but once i like in my music career like once i started like i started with punk rock and then started to go to heavy metal and i decided like when i started to listen to tool oh my god what is this so i went to progressive stuff so, like, me, in order like, to understand Tool, understand Dream Theory, you have to understand Rush. You have to understand uh, Emerson, like, in Palmer or uh, Pink Floyd and all those kind of stuff. But I didn't necessarily play attention all the time that my mom would be playing uh, money and stuff like that. I was like, ah, please stop. But now <laughs> I'm super fortunate uh, with that. So it's, like, it's funny. You, you mentioned just quickly, I was actually listening to brain cell surgery the other day. Um, but I think, like, you know, going back to like, you know, talking about uh, Dream Theater, talking about uh, Tool and then the prog rock of the 90s and early 2000s, um, you know, you have to step backwards to Jeff Toll or to Rush or right. to Yes or to Emerson and Palmer or, or further back King Crimson um, mm -hmm. and then to Zeppelin. And it's almost, you know, just to tie into Chenin Blanc, to really understand Chenin Blanc. Yeah. You got to go to the Loire. So you understand that, and you understand how it works within all these different uh, subclimates and subsoils, and different aspects of sunshine depending on where it is uh, on the river, north or south, mm -hmm. left or right bank. All of a sudden, you start to really get a sense of what this place can do. And then when you take it out to like South Africa, to, you know, Stain or mm -hmm. or to California or elsewhere. Yeah. It's much more recognizable when you, you kind of see it's not its true form, but it's it's classic home. Totally, like the, as you said, like those many different places. I mean, a lot of times people think that you can only it's not only about Loire. Yes, it is, but uh, but again, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, uh, even Canada, China, 
uh, they have like California and so elastic that going from sparklings to uh, dessert slash fortified sweet wines and and how to play with uh, with the residual sugar in these wines are pretty awesome. So what I'm drinking is from Samur. So I have Domaine Saint-Landor, which they are like right in the heart of, uh, of Samur. And a lot of times when we think about Loire and Samur, we think about like all the great castles and all the famous for the picturesque castles and everything. But um, one of the cool things about those castles that in order like to understand, it's the fact they have a lot of tunnels and those tunnels are all in the, they had the tunnels connecting some of these castles and everything. And um, the Tufo limestone soils, that's what like those, those, um, those uh, caves, sorry, those caves and those tunnels they have. And that's pivotal like to cellar and to cellar like, you know, like bubbles, the fine bubbles of, of Samur. I have a, a steel wine, but great energy and how Samur plays in, in the role of, uh, of, uh, of the Loire. And a lot of times you think, People tend to think that Chenin Blanc coming from Loire is just this. Now it goes like in different styles and in different perspectives. So what are you having? You're having some Chenin Blanc too? Like what are you having? Yeah, so I am uh, going to Savignier. Uh, okay. So we're right on the western part of Anjou. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is really one of the classic areas. In fact, I used the word cerebral earlier. earlier. Um, there was a writer, was Jacqueline uh, Friedrich, uh, who is an American writer who lives in France, wrote a book, I think it was like Food and Wine, Understanding Wine and Food in France or something like that. And she had said that that the wines of Sauvignon are a cerebral experience. Um, this to me is, is, I don't want to say it's classic Chenin Blanc because there are many mm-hmm. uh, incarnations of it in such a diverse area of the Loire. Um, but to me, it's one of my favorite villages and I'm drinking a specific single uh, vineyard called Clos de Papillon. Okay. Now, in this Claude uh, Papillon, there are three producers um, within the vineyard. There is uh, Domaine de Closel, uh, Beaumard, which I think is probably one of the, the more popular ones you're seeing in the market, a great, great product, but I am drinking uh, Domaine de Forge. So they were founded in 1890, all estate fruit. Um, and what I think is really cool about Chenin Blanc, it reacts so well to the terroir. Mm-hmm. And I think it is probably next to Chardonnay and I would actually say Grenache. I don't think there's um, a varietal that showcases terroir the same way that Chenin Blanc does. And what is wild about that is that Chenin Blanc is a grape that has a lot of aromatics to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a lot of kind of quintessential aromas that not Grenache doesn't always have, Chardonnay doesn't always have. It really depends on where you're growing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the soils here is some of those tufa soils, but it's mostly schist. There's a little bit of granite. There's some quartz as well. Uh, there's some volcanic soils, uh, igneous rocks. So basically when the lava cools on the surface quickly, um, so it becomes a little more porous. And uh, we're about mid-slope on this, uh, facing kind of the, the banks of the right bank of the of the, uh, the Loire River. Mm-hmm. Um, but a perfect microclimate. And to me, it's just always going to be comparing it even to Burgundy one of my favorite vineyards for, mm-hmm. for wine, obviously Chenin Blanc rather than Chardonnay or Pinot. You know, because like for me, I, I'm drinking some more, but whenever I think about like the Chenin Blanc that I really love from the Loire, it's definitely Sauvignon. I think that's, you know, for me, it screams the home. That's my opinion. For me, that <laughs> screams like, you know, like when I, the way I like my, my, 
Chenon Blanc, it's normally Sauvignon. I love stuff coming from Samur, even from Jasnier too. Three different perspectives in the Loire. But what I like about Samur, it's how small it is and so many things happen over there. And if we break down like all the, all the AOCs and Appalachians and subregions and styles in these subregions in the Loire, like Anjou and, and with Samur, there's so many different wines that this grape is like doing. You know, like just in what Samur we have, like Comment de Loire, IGP Loire, um, you have uh, Samur Brut, uh, what else can you do? Couleur de Serein. That, that's yeah. so many st stuff, you know, in a tiny sure. region. And even when you go to like the, um, uh, so the, the Cote d'Orléans, um, there's the Cote de Charme, Grand Cru, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are all kind of more the sweeter styles, but they, they, because they're closer, especially in this part of the river, closer to the Atlantic, they get a little more humidity. Mm -hmm. It's less dry than when you get to like Touraine and then the Central Touraine. Vineyard, yeah. um, where Chenin Blanc becomes more opulent, and mm -hmm. beautiful, but more opulent. You get more minerality here, but um, you have the propensity for some botrytis. And actually, within this vineyard, they do get some botrytis. So you get some of those, um, not just tertiary notes from the oak aging. It's, I think it's 11 months on the leaves in large 400 liter barrels, mm -hmm. a little bit of boppinage. And then, um, but you're also getting, you know, some of those kind of raisined or not just quince, but I think specifically like Membrillo from Spain. Membrillo. Um, it's, it's reduced. It's a little more um, concentrated, you know, and you get some of that, which just gives it, but the sparkle of, the sparkle of minerality, which is great. You know, that's what, I think that's what screams volumes when you think about Chenin Blanc and what, I think it's definitely one of those varieties that Napa certain pockets of Napa could could play with Chinoa makes total sense uh, when we think mainly like Paso Robles and stuff like that, but even some other pockets that we can find in uh, in, uh, in California. Uh, but in my glass, like what this producer the with the, what I have, so this producer what uh, they actually of course they play with uh, some bubbles, they have some. Uh, some comments and they do um, a red sparkling to, of course, Cabernet Franc, which that's, oh, that's pretty cool. cool. Which is something that I, it's kind of part of the Portuguese tradition to have red sparklings made out of Bago from the Bairrada region, even Vinho Verde. We make uh, we make some sparklings made out of Vinho. And I think it's super fun to have those like barbecuing in, even for, uh, for um, Thanksgiving, but they're very focused on just the varieties of, of the region. And this is 2019. What are you drinking? 19, 20? Uh, this is uh, 17. 17? Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're starting to get some of the secondary mm -hmm. aromas. You know. so you and and what, what's really cool, too, I think, about, about these wines is that they can age for such a long time. Such a long time. Yeah. They're, they're great within probably the first two, three years. They're, they're good wines. Mm -hmm. They just get better and better and better. And I would say they can age in a way that Sometimes white burgundy has a hard time aging, which okay. almost seems blasphemous to say that, <laughs> but it is absolutely true. And they can age better than a lot of Bordeaux, I think. You know, like, and, and again, like how, how it works, how the, the variety works with oak, no oak, and of course the, the terroir part. But um, in my wine, like great attack, very lively, fresh, vibrant, like just like a lot of the music that I like, like a lot of tension like i think it was awesome that he mentioned jeff buckley uh to the whole thing because he was so versatile he, he would bring so many things 
uh, into the table, and that's why I love Led Zeppelin. I'm a huge fan yeah. of Led Zeppelin. I started to listen more to Led Zeppelin like it was like probably like, like 14, 15. That's when I started to be introduced with cassettes and everything. Mm -hmm. I was already listening to Metallica and punk rock and everything. But then Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath started to come in. Already had a little bit of Deep Purple. I listened to Made in Japan with my father uh, while I was young and everything. And um, But I like Led Zeppelin because every album, every era of their career, uh, they brought something different, even if they came to the U.S. and they got more folkyish, like a lot of British bands start to get more folkyish, or like or start to be more bluesy because like time spending here, that's what they would love to listen outside of England. Uh, it's very interesting to see that part, like how um, most of those um, great musicians and most of the great bands that we listen to, they're actually coming from England, but in the meantime, they were very inspired by what was happening in America. And a lot of times you think like Americans were being like getting inspired in England actually might be the other way around. In many situations <laughs> that English, they were like really getting inspired with um, with American music because all of that diversity that we are here. So I'm very blessed yeah. to be in this country uh, for many different reasons. And that's one of them uh, that, uh, you know, like I said, to listen to Jimi Hendrix because my mom loved Jimi Hendrix and just, the way, like I was thinking here, like how things make 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 sense, like Jimi Hendrix in New York, or like in those kind of things, and even the Ramones. I grew up with Ramones too. My father loved the Ramones and loved the Clash. He started like to move, like he started to get tired of the very long songs, so he started to listen to some, <laughs> some more. Three minutes. <laughs> you know, Rush went from you know eighteen minutes to like four minutes. <laughs> you know, within the course of two albums. So um, that's awesome. Yeah, I, you know, um, actually, you were playing, you know, Zeppelin a little bit ago, and there's something about the wine that I'm drinking that reminds me a little bit of Custard Pie uh, from Physical Graffiti, the title oh, track. Okay. Yeah, uh -huh. Pie. Uh, and maybe it's psychosomatic because there's kind of this richness to this wine. Okay. Uh, there's velocity to it. So my head kind of goes right into this kind of custard idea. But the whole concept uh, for me of pairing wine and music really started when we first started bringing in Bordeaux to our company. Okay. Um, I've, Bordeaux is one of the first regions that I learned Bordeaux and Burgundy. Uh, but when it comes to working as a wholesaler and selling Bordeaux, it's, it's a very different animal from drinking it to going out in the streets and trying to sell it because oftentimes the classified chateaus, we can't really pull the samples. You just have to say we have it. Um, and it's it's a little more challenging than even I would say Burgundy in, in many ways because of the prestige of these of these chateaus. But when we first started bringing in some producers, I believe from, from uh, the Lurton family, which I think is the only, maybe one of two families in Bordeaux that are still a wine family. Uh -huh. It's not Christian Dior or, you know, Gucci or whoever that owns them, because uh, it's all about the Bennies in, in Bordeaux. But, um, you know, someone had asked me at our office, um, and since we didn't sell a lot of Bordeaux, a lot of the reps didn't really know a lot about Bordeaux, because you, you know what you sell and what you have access to. And so someone asked, how would you describe left bank versus right bank beyond Cabernet and Merlot? Mm -hmm. Because the reality is that if somebody in Napa who drinks Napa Cab you can blind them on Napa Merlot and they might say they hate Merlot. They might call it cap because yeah. it's the structure. Exactly. Um, and they may not understand Pouillac or Margot or Saint-Step because the structure is totally different. So I was like, the only way I can really describe it is that left bank is Led Zeppelin and right bank is Queen. 
Okay. You know, left bank is always driving. Even when uh, Pulyak has age to it, we talk about the tannin, um, the attack of the wine, the acidity, the sharpness, the intensity of the wine. That's Led Zeppelin. Even when Led Zeppelin matured and they were, you know, recording Cashmere or All of My Love, which is, you know, I mean, it's a sad song about Robert Plant's son passing, but, you know, it's... You know, and there's that Bonzo drive to it. That's the tenant of the left bank. Yeah. Okay. And uh, right bank for me is always nuanced. Mm -hmm. And that's always queen. It's kind of plush, um, sonically kind of envelops the entirety of your ears. And that Merlot does that. Um, that's, and even when Queen was driving like Stone Cold Crazy, uh -huh. it was still layered and harmonious and a billion little things going on. And every time you hear that song, you hear something else. Um, and so it, you know, my concept of doing this really kind of developed from there. Mm -hmm. And then I started getting deeper and deeper into it. And, um, you know, so uh, with my wine, though, it's a custard pie, but mm -hmm. actually uh, there's a really great singer, really good friend of mine. Her name is Ruby Rose Fox. And she has a song called Painkiller. And that reminds me, she has a, a very deep voice, mm -hmm. but it can be extremely sharp. She learned how to sing listening to Roy Orbison. Mm -hmm. And um, so she just has this like, naturally deep sultry voice that to me is the opulence in the wine the um guitar is a semi hollow body so there's a punchy mid-range to it uh, which to me is the minerality um not just chalky but stony this wine is so minerally that on the palate it almost feels like tannin because i can feel the, the top of my lips just a little bit of a grittiness there okay and uh, so check out stone uh a, Painkiller from Ruby Rose Fox. It's, a, it's an awesome. Okay. She's incredible. She's just like multifaceted, multi-talented. Well, the moment I thought it was Painkiller by Judas, Judas Priest, but. <laughs> <laughs>
know, one of the things that I actually really liked a few years ago that I liked, like, um, um, it's an importer, uh, importer supplier uh, here in New York that they do a comparison. We would do like a lot of tastings when, you know, like when I was working as a SOM, I would go over there and learn more about like all, everything Bordeaux, they're, they're a Bordeaux uh, company. And one of the things that I like, you know, like the face of the company, like the, the, the educator of the company and the owner of the company, what he would do, he would like really like resemble some kind of Bordeaux and connect them like to certain characters, like a James Bond character. Let's say for instance, like this is more a Roger Moore. This would be more a Daniel Craig, or this would be yeah. uh, the awesome. Timothy, uh, what was his name, uh, Timothy Dalton, or something like that. Like yeah. I like that. Or then, like for me, this is Tina Turner, or that vintage. It's a Tina Turner kind of vintage, and everything, and was super awesome. And a lot of people, like whenever, like he would say that and actually put it on paper, and uh, and it made total sense. It made total sense mainly for me at that time. I was trying to have more of a grip as a wine director of, uh, of Bordeaux. I was buying a lot of Bordeaux at that time. And either, like, new songs that were getting, like, in the, in the industry, or, like, was nice for them. I could tell, like, this helps them. Like, this tiny detail really helps them. And those conversations that we have after, you know, after a long shift and you go to the bar next door or you just have, like, a little shift drink or whatever, and <laughs> You know, like, and you talk with your back, your back service, you talk with your runners and even with the, your chef, like, hey, Bruno, explain me this one, blah, 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 blah. And a lot of times, like, I try to introduce a little bit of, like, the music component because once you go downstairs, that's what they're listening to. Like, while they're cooking, they're looking, they're, they're, they're listening to their music. Like, it's, I love kitchens that are, like, always like that. Like, that's what drives them. I like that, so. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, too, when I started doing this and started pairing one in music, obviously, you know, I'm a, a, a middle-aged rocker. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking of the Jethro School song the other day, uh, too old to rock and roll, too young to die. And I was like, oh, my God, that's me. But, <laughs> um, but I, obviously, like, I'm, I'm always going to get geared towards the music that I like. And, and thankfully, I have an, uh, enough diversity in, in terms of the music that I like to listen to. Uh, even a lot of contemporary stuff. My, I have a 15 year old daughter and an, um, and a half year old daughter and they love, they love Harry Styles. And I'm mm -hmm. listening now to Harry Styles constantly. And like, I freaking love it, you know? Oh. And maybe three years ago, I'd been like, oh, this is teeny bopper music. But mm -hmm. then I have to remember, remind myself the Beatles were also teeny bopper and Hendrix, exactly. some people consider teeny bopper and, and they revolutionized music. But, um, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> It's the Chin, it's the Chin and Blanc, you know, uh, talking. But I, uh, oh, oh no, I know what it was. But the intentionality to me is is really important too, because you know we need to be intentional about being a more inclusive society. And it's very easy to talk about great wine, a great Grand Cru Burgundy, and pair it with Yo-Yo Ma, Cello Suite One G Major, which is a perfect piece of music, um, and and it makes sense. Or Charles Heitzig with the, the kind of deep Rio sound of Ella Fitzgerald, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to, to take music that people wouldn't always associate with the wine and introduce them to that is important. Mm -hmm. uh, we had, I, I do a podcast and we had Philippe Andre on once uh, from- Speaking uh, of last night. 
Yeah, for, for Charles Heitzig. And, yeah. and we opened up with House of Pain, Jump Around, because that to me is uh-huh. pretty fine, you know? And, and it works with it works with the uh, with the champagne, and I think it made the that episode and it made the champagne more vibrant to taste and drink. So again, again, like in yesterday, actually, the component like uh, was a celebration of the two hundred years of Charles Zetzik, and what uh, what he uh, what he, not only like what he did in terms of bringing the culture of champagne uh, to the U.S. and what he did uh, trying to bring France and France and uh, America together, like how Rockefeller, like all these big families actually helped out uh, in the rebuilt Paris and Notre Dame and stuff like that. Uh, but the music component of, because he was a bon vivant, <laughs> he liked yeah. to party, the, you know, like that, the, the music side of Charles Hedzik was pretty cool. And the music that was yesterday was very eclectic. And for me, a lot of times that's champagne for me. Champagne is very eclectic, like how different nuances go. And having the, they had a great DJ that was like incorporating so many different stuff. Everyone was just like, it was just one guy, like with a saxophone. He had like two keyboards, DJing. It was like super versatile, and uh, was very was very uh, very interesting moment and a very uh, was a great moment. Celebrating. Uh, I, I must have missed that invitation. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I love the idea of the Led Zeppelin and the Left Bank because when we think about structure, like it's John Paul Jones and John Bonham, and a lot of times people forget about that. Though those two were the two that were driving the band. Actually, it was not necessarily Absolutely. with all the respect that I have for Page and Plant, but John Paul Jones, he was an amazing musician. Like he could play anything. Like he was playing yeah. keyboards and most of the stuff, and some of the like low key, like at least that kind of sad songs a little down it's the songs that i like because it's john paul jones like you know like no quarter like with the keyboards everything you know like no quarter for me like and then when tool did no quarter was even like oh my god like, oh. <laughs> so <laughs> but the audience in that song is incredible it's just it the mood is is phenomenal in that, in that song but another great song that i really blew my mind that was when tori amos she did uh uh, Raining Blood from Slayer. She has a cover album, and she's just her. I love Tori Amos, and it was just her and the piano, of course. And she did like slowly, like I was like, I know this lyric, I know this song. Like I'm like, and then she says, Raining Blood. I'm like, oh my god, it's Raining Blood from Slayer. You know, like and how music can like totally like change the song and all of a sudden you love this song but like oh this is the original but you still like the song you like the lyrics right so music definitely can open up a conversation and put one like in a in a broader and getting out of the comfort zone and, and everything so cheers to Chanel Blanc and everything that Chanel Blanc does man absolutely so like we we, we drove a little bit about the, a little bit about around the Boston surroundings and everything like, so how is Boston for you in terms of wine, the wine culture, music culture, like how is that for you over there? It's, um, music culture has definitely suffered in the last two years uh, because of obviously COVID. Um, you're starting to see some rebound with a lot of the clubs that are opening up. You're seeing more musicians come through. I actually went to go see recently uh, Kishibashi, who is um, Japanese American, plays the violin. I actually just, released an album it's all it's playing right now in japanese film festivals around the country but it's called omiyade which is um i believe it is a japanese term for a gift but 
it's he calls it a song film. He goes to all the internment camps in the United States and he plays music in the United States. Uh, I mean, in these internment camps, uh, which is just powerful, you know. In terms of the wine scene, it's it's changing quite a bit. Um, I find that it is becoming really vibrant actually outside of the city mm -hmm. because that's where you're seeing more of the small independent restaurants that will, you know, put a vino verde by the glass um, or, you know, put smaller brands, smaller uh, wineries, uh, lesser known varietals as a glass pour because in Boston, you got to pay rent and you need to make sure you can sell a lot of it and you need to make sure the price is where you need to be. And um, that ends up being, unfortunately, with a lot of the bigger mm -hmm. bigger houses. Um, that being said, there's a lot of movement um, within some of these smaller wineries, even in Boston, which is really great to see because you have a lot of psalms, a lot of wine directors, a lot of servers that this is what they like. 
So even the natural wine movement in Boston is extra growing. Um, maybe not in the big chain restaurants. Uh, I don't mean Applebee's, but I mean like the big high-end chain restaurants. Uh, but you're seeing smaller independent restaurants in the city playing with a lot of these wines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it becomes a broader conversation about what's in that glass, what is on that plate, and how do they, how do they play together, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really exciting. And then outside the city, it's really starting to, especially Worcester, which is uh, was always the working class kind of neighborhood, and um, it's changing dramatically. So it's it's exciting to see. And you're doing a lot of stuff. You're doing a lot of work with um, with a lot of uh, um, with a lot of sake. So a lot of sake programs and everything. How is that playing? The yeah, sake. it's been that's been great. So we actually just opened up a new uh, sake bar called the Koji Club, which is run by my friend Alyssa. Um, it is. Incredible, not just that it's it's a beautiful, it's very small, it's very cozy, but it's a really beautiful spot. Um, but she started this two years ago during lockdown mm-hmm. um, without having a space. And she was just doing pop-ups and doing what she could. She would, or casings in stores, or she would have newsletters and ship out sake um, and then do a virtual thing with people. And she opened up her doors in February. And I mean, they've been constant reorders for sake and, and we're seeing new sakes coming out. Um, we're starting to see sake outside of Japanese restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, people are at least are curious about it, which I think is, is really the key to be out of either Japanese or Asian fusion, um, but to be in a steakhouse where you have oysters, uh, you might have a sashimi towel. Mm-hmm. Well, you should have a good sake. Yeah. Although, Chino Block works really well. With <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it's been great. I mean, the amount of Japanese restaurants that are opening, you know, and Asian restaurants were very slow to reopen, uh, which was really difficult, obviously, for for them and for, for the people that work with them and then the sake brewers um, and the importers. I think they were really afraid of any kind of anti-Asian backlash. Um, so they were very, very careful on how they reopened. Right. But now... Most places are reopened. Um, not a lot of the Asian restaurants that I've called on have closed, which is amazing. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants, actually, it's a small little place here in Cambridge called Nomi Nomi. What he does is he um, he did this all this stuff to go, and he does amakaze to go, and now he's reopened not for full dinner service. It used to be kind of izakaya, but now it is only amakaze, reservation only, and he's booked out about two or three months in advance. Wow. He sells out every single night. It's not crazy expensive. It's just a small little place. And um, even when he was open, he only had like five or six tables. So um, I've done a lot of events with him. Uh, an event we called Sake Forward, where he comes up with the amakaze. I present the sakes, and I just talk about them. Um, we'll pick music that kind of pairs with the, the vibe of the night. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And, you know, I think what's fun about sake is that it is so new for everybody that we can actually be a little more liberated in terms yeah. of how we present more, it. There's more room to talk about it. Like you can open a lot of doors talking about sake, right? Yeah, rather than why people think of something very specific in a specific style, no, it's not which has been my mission to change that. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure yours and Philippe Andre's to change that that discussion and and have it more inclusive and broader and, and reach and touch people that you never thought would be reached and touched by it. 
So talking about like all that, like you know, what are you doing and how to reach people? Like, so you have a cool podcast, at the bottom of the bottle. Can you tell us just a little bit like what what's behind you? Do it with your friend Adam Getaldo. So yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your podcast. So I have to give Adam props here because he's the one who thought about it. Um, when I took my role at my company because I was a sales rep before, he's like, "We should have a podcast," and I'm like, "Yeah, sure, okay, whatever." But I'm such a procrastinator that if it's up to me to set something up, it's not going to happen. So I found that you just have to just set it up. Why don't you email our bosses, say we're going to start this podcast. Then they're going to say you got to do it, and then they'll do it, and then I'll get really behind it. But um, what we do, we he's got a bottle of wine, I got a bottle of wine. Uh, we started on Zoom. We do most of them on Zoom, but some, sometimes we're we're um, in person. We drink our wines and we talk about them, uh, but kind of in the same way. Um, our last one was we were show, uh, showcasing the wines from Torunio from Concho uh, Toro. Okay. Um, we started with Jimi Hendrix. We always start with a different artist. We explain why we start with that artist, and then we break down, you know, what the wine is, um, the history behind it. But we really go into sometimes the political side of it. Um, like Chef and the Pop has a crazy political background, you know, from the 13th century and popes and Knights Templar and all this other stuff. Um, and so I, we both really like talking about that. It's interesting. It's fun for us. And the historical part of it is the cultural part of it, it is the human part of it. And ultimately it's not about, you know, what the wine tastes like. It's like, how the hell did it get here? And that story predates even humans to geology. Like, you know, what created Portugal and Spain was the Iberian plate colliding with the Eurasian plate and creating the Pyrenees and all this stuff. And, there's a story there that creates what's in our glass. And so we touch on that. Um, we do it very much like this, where it's very improvised. We don't rehearse at all. Um, and we find that it's the best way for us to do it. Otherwise, we really look like we're reading lines. I'm not a good actor, so <laughs> I just got to be me, and that's the only way it's going to work, you know. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you can find us on Spotify. You, can, you know, I think Apple Podcasts is fun um, and, uh, yeah, we're on our second season. Um, we've taken a couple of weeks off, but the last one, um, I think was actually, uh, structurally was probably our best and, um, they just get better and better as we do them. And awesome. yeah, so that's what we do. You know, thanks so much for doing that. And thank you, you know, like to, uh, you know, to remind us and to, uh, and to have this perspective, you know, like not only wine, but music and as a human being, so many things um, are behind the label and behind the bottle. There's so much things that we can talk about, the great juice that inside uh, the bottles that we drink and uh, cheers to that and cheers to Chinon Blanc and everything that Chinon Blanc does. It really helps the conversation on that matter. Uh, <laughs> it really helps. Uh, with a hot Maggie Day, I think Chinon Blanc does a great job, but in my opinion, you can drink a beautiful, clean, crisp uh, Chenin Blanc during Super Bowl, during the, the Oscars. Like, there's always a chance to drink great wines. They don't have to be only when it's hot or warm. You can drink a beautiful, cold wine like this in a in a cold night. Like, gives you energy, gives you hope. That's absolutely and stuff like that. No, nobody drinks warm beer on a cold night. Exactly, cold beer. <laughs> Before we end, uh, I'd like to ask you a couple of things. So, like, in any 
message to the world that uh, you like to give to us? Like any like brief message that you know like comes to your mind right now that you'd like to tell us all? Yeah. Um, happy Pride Month. Uh, Pride Month should be every month. Um, and it was a little plug for my favorite podcast. You're wrong about it. it was capitalism all along uh, <laughs> <laughs> with the with the pride flag. Um, I guess that'd be my message to the world. No, I don't. Just love each other, and you know, we we are all we are all beautiful and and complex and sometimes simple, just like almost any glass of wine you can find. Keep it simple. Like a lot of times, like Chernobyl can can go complex, but can be just simple, straight to the point. And a lot of times, we forget about being straight to the point. Yeah. And uh, before we end, uh, we always have a letter of the day at summation. And today, the letter the, of the day will be N. N. So we're going to be N for many, many different reasons. Could be C for Chernobyl, but it's going to be N for nectar for nuance, for nurtured, and for nice. So that's everything <laughs> that belong. Dude, thank you so much, Manny. Uh, oh, thank we'll you see you sometime soon. Uh, please don't be shy, visit us. Uh, uh, we'll make it happen with Philippe, something like that. We have some uh, some uh, some bubbles, some Chenon Blanc. He loves Chenon Blanc too, I'm positive. I'm positive. <laughs> uh, but great talk to you. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much, you. please. Follow, follow Manny, Manny Gonzalez and uh, check out his podcast, Bottom of the Bottle, on Spotify. We'll have, on, we'll have you on soon. Thank you so much for the day. <laughs> awesome. Can't wait. Thank you so much. Hope to see you soon, man. Cheers, man. Take care. Rock on, man. More cowbell. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you all for uh, being here with me today. Uh, please Keep following every exciting things that we're doing at Summation Live. This was episode 319. Can't believe that it's been all these episodes. Like time flies goes so so fast. But please uh, stay tuned. We have great things coming next week, and I shall see you soon. And thank you all. Enjoy your weekend. Cheers to you all. More cowbell. Bye bye. Thank you. But got him at the evil one